coming to you from beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Promoting peace, healthy living, and happiness. It's the Peace Podcast with host Barbara Gon Mueller. Are just delighted that you are here tonight. I want to admit that we are so excited. The Arlington has given us the marquee, and this is our night to celebrate our fifth annual Peace Prize event. Thank you for joining us. I'm Barbara Gon Mueller. This is brought to you by the United Nations Association, Santa Barbara and Tri County. I've been president for 10 years, so no wonder we have such a great event. Look at all the people who know me by my name and look at all the people that I am so honored that you're here. You know, tonight we have an exciting event. It's taken us a while to put it together. And because you are here, we are so excited that we will be able to show you how we work on the local level for the United Nations. We are the local arm for the global voice. I always say from local to global. And that's why we started honoring peacemakers. We have all of these wonderful places that honor the unknown soldier, but where do we honor our peacemakers? Where do we honor our peace builders? And today, I must tell you, is the 40th anniversary of the International Day of Peace. If you look at your calendar, you will see that September 21 is an International Day of Peace. My late husband worked at the UN for over 40 years, and it's so amazing because he created this with a whole host of other UN officials in 1980, but it took one year to get it on the calendar. And I'll tell you a secret, they got it on the calendar because they had a calendar maker in their vicinity. And that's how you get things done sometime, being in the right place at the right time. So without further ado, I'd like to tell you what you're in store for. Tonight, we not only have our fabulous Peter Yo speaking to us, I just see two of our wonderful uh, nominee and a beautiful Peace Prize winner has just joined us, but I wanna tell you about the theme for the International Day of Peace. This year, the theme is recovering better, for a sustainable and equitable world. Does that not make you feel that we can do it? And this morning, Sharon called me all excited because Antonio Guterres, the, the Secretary General said that is code red for the environment. And Biden heard that. And Biden said that the code red is how we are going to work. Now you may know we have 17 development goals and those are what we work on as we work at the United Nations Association. Without further ado, you are in for a treat. And this treat comes all the way from Washington, Peter Yo. Peter Yo is not only my friend, but his illustrious career started over, let's see, how many years ago? In 2009, he had 20 years of legislative, analytical, and management experience, including senior roles on Capitol Hill in the State Department. He is the president of a Better World campaign. He is also the strategic engagement for Congress and the administration to promote a strong UN-US relationship. He also serves as the senior vice president of the United Nations of Foundation. I want you to know one thing about Peter. He doesn't just sit in his office. He just returned from a wonderful mission trying to keep peace on the planet. A peacemaking mission follows, will bring you to what Peter is doing now in the world. Now, you're gonna have a few questions and answers. 
questions and we'll let Peter answer. Put your question into the chat box. Jack Freelander, part of our committee for the Peace Prize is going to ask Peter a few questions after his talk. I wanna also introduce Sharon Byrne, our Vice President of Communications and Vice President of IT person for us, and then Debbie Cregan. This is the team. Each one of us, the four people at the top of your little chart are all the ones that put this event together. And I welcome each of you. Thank you for joining us. Peter, without further ado, let's get the event started. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Barbara, for inviting me to be here today in celebration of the International Day of Peace and uh, UNA uh, Santa Barbara's presentation of the Fifth Annual Peace Prize. Honestly, the only thing uh, that could be better than talking to you all this evening is if I could be there in person. Uh, honestly, who would turn down a trip to Santa Barbara? Um, and uh, I'm sure it's wonderful weather and uh, out there today, it certainly isn't here. Um, I have been so impressed by the work of UNA Santa Barbara uh, throughout the years uh, and Barbara for your leadership, we're so appreciative. Uh, it's played really honestly an incredibly important role, not only in terms of uh, uh, spreading the word about the work of the United Nations um, in uh, Santa Barbara and in the region, but also in terms of making sure that your policymakers appreciate the value of the UN and work in Washington to support strong multilateral engagement. Um, this, uh, so thank you for all that you do and for every chapter member for what you do and your leadership of the chapter for what you do. Uh, this event obviously is well-timed, not only because it is, coincides with the International Day of Peace, but as Barbara mentioned, I just returned uh, last night uh, from a trip to the UN peacekeeping mission in Cyprus. Uh, and frankly, whenever I return from a UN peacekeeping mission and I have visited a dozen peacekeeping missions throughout the years, I return inspired. And I wanna share with you tonight a little bit of this inspiration um, and give you a sense about um, what I see in terms of the day-to-day -day work of UN peacekeepers, working brick by, brick by brick, day by day, really to try to develop peace and sustain peace um, in a way that uh, really gives me hope. Uh, so I'll, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the mission tonight and some other subjects and then look forward to your questions. Um, honestly, when most people think about UN peacekeeping, they probably think about the missions like Mali where dozens of groups, many with links to Al-Qaeda um, are battling for control or the Central African Republic where civil war has destroyed a lot of the basic infrastructure in the country and leaving the majority of its citizens without food and water. Um, and in many cases, and in many of the 12 peacekeeping missions that exist today in the world, um, you know, the lives of civilians are under constant threat, as are the lives of UN peacekeepers that are protecting civilians and working to promote peace. The 1,000 strong, you know, soldiers, police mission in Cyprus, it's different. Uh, it serves a more narrow, and in, in some respects more traditional function, but it's no less important. And I wanna explain to you tonight why this mission in Cyprus is so important. 
Um, Cyprus has been locked in a political stalemate for decades between the Greek Cypriot forces in the south and the Turkish Cypriot forces in the north. Uh, and despite many high profile attempts to negotiate a solution and to win approval of a solution, um, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Um, the nations of Greece and Turkey, two NATO members, have direct interests in the island. Turkey is the region's largest economy, just 300 miles to the north, and Greece enjoys support from uh, many UN Security Council members. And while Cyprus's uh, location in the Mediterranean is bucolic, and believe me, it's bucolic, it exists in a volatile part of the world. I mean, roughly 300 miles to the east, uh, Syria remains in the midst of a horrific civil war. Slightly closer is Lebanon, and the crisis there has pushed 78% uh, of its population into poverty. And add to that equation is the European Union. Cyprus is a member, but the EU is very much interested in developing the natural gas resources in the Eastern Mediterranean and in limiting the flow of migrants into Europe, sometimes via Cyprus, sometimes via Turkey. So you can just get a sense from all of these factors why Cyprus matters, why stability in Cyprus matters. So I just wanted to share a few observations with you about what I saw firsthand over the past week. First, UN peacekeepers indeed provide significant stability to Cyprus and the region. And without this stability, we would have a situation where two NATO members, Greece and Turkey, would potentially be once again engaged in armed conflicts over Cyprus. This would have enormous consequences, not only for Cyprus and its people, but for the US and NATO and the EU and the UN. Peacekeepers actually help prevent this conflict, um, primarily by ensuring that small little incidents don't spiral out of control. And let me just give you a few examples. Um, there's a buffer zone that separates North and South Cyprus. And in some places it's kilometers wide. And in those places, peacekeepers frankly ensure that the Greek communities that live in the buffer zone don't encroach too closely on their Turkish neighbors to the North or significantly increase the size of their villages and their farming activities in a way that would anger the Turkish Cypriot community right on the border. In other places, particularly near the capital of Nicosia, the buffer zone is only meters wide. Just to give you a flavor of it, we walked into the buffer zone and diners of outdoor cafes on both the Turkish and the Greek side were sort of staring down at us as we walked through the buffer zone and wondering frankly why we were there. Um, the peacekeepers in that sort of more narrow area, they keep the peace by patiently, persistently working to cajole those who would upset it to stop their destabilizing activities. So frankly, it's not particularly sexy. There's no guns, there's no fighting. There's just good old fashioned 
peacemaking. And we should be appreciative of our friends in the Argentinian and the UK and the Slovakian military who are willing to play that role. So first of all, peacekeepers are in fact providing stability to Cyprus. Second of all, the UN mission has a significant civilian component, which promotes meaningful cooperation between the Greek and Turkish Cypriot communities on a variety of issues. This cooperation in and of itself will not, will not, will not result in a movement for peace, but it will hopefully ensure that the communities have greater understanding of each other and appreciation of each other as, wait, as they wait for their political leaders to find a path towards peace. Just to give you a few examples, there's a technical committee of the two communities that focuses on policing, which basically ensures that criminals can flee over the border and avoid justice. There's a committee on the missing, which works to re reunite bodily remains from the 1974 uh, invasion and the communal violence that came before that and bring some closure for families. The Preservation Committee, and we visited the walls that were actually constructed by the Venetians in the 1500s. Uh, and these walls are being restored and preserved with agreement from both sides. Honestly, these are relatively small steps, but they keep the door open to peace and mutual understanding. Third, there is a broader UN role in sponsoring peace discussions at the highest political levels. And it's important, it's key. Since the 1960s, the UN has played the role of facilitating negotiations between the two sides to craft a long-term solution to the situation in, in Cyprus and to bring the island together once again. In 2004, in fact, the UN actually negotiated the deal, which was rejected uh, by the Greek Cypriot side, but approved by the Turkish Cypriot side. Despite that failure, the UN is still viewed by both sides as the proper forum for future tries at an agreement that will reunite the island and the two populations of Cypriots. The Secretary General, in fact, participated in meetings in Switzerland in April. And next week, the Secretary General will host the two leaders for a meeting in New York. So hope springs eternal that there's always a pathway to peace. Fourth, and this is, uh, you know, real politique, the UN is gonna be there for decades to come. It is clear to me that the current political leadership is not well positioned to work out a long-term solution. On the Turkish Cypriot side, they elected to a leader two years ago um, who's defeated somebody who is committed to finding, was committed to finding a solution. We met with Mr. Tatar, who is the leader of the Turkish Cypriot community, and he made it clear to the delegation that they viewed themselves as Turks, not Cypriots, and that there would be no peace agreement until the global community recognized a free and independent North Cyprus. The leaders in the Republic of Cyprus and the Greek Cypriot community in the South are more sophisticated in how they communicate their views about peace. They expressed a strong desire to resume negotiations with the Norse towards an agreement, but it's also clear that they're not willing at this point to make the 
far-reaching political and cultural and economic concessions to work out a deal. The South is already a member of the EU, which brings significant economic benefits, and it enjoys significant support on the Security Council from US and Russia and the UK. Frankly, they don't feel the pressure to work out an agreement. So the UN will likely be there for generations to come. The UN mission is not a particularly expensive mission, and the Greeks and the Republic of Cyprus already pay half the costs. So if the price of peace is supporting the current small peacekeeping mission, we should do it, in my humble opinion. But, you know, I, I apologize for focusing so heavily on Cyprus, but it's on my mind because I just returned there yesterday. But what's interesting is Cyprus also raises uh, a broader point about UN peacekeeping. Cyprus is the first mission, UN peacekeeping mission, to be led by three women, heading the police, military, and civilian components of peacekeeping operations there. It, this ensures that, frankly, the perspectives and lived uh, experiences of both men and women are utilized in peacekeeping. But unfortunately, Cyprus, it's unusual. In 2020, out of the approximately 95,000 peacekeepers, UN peacekeepers deployed around the world, women constitute 34% of the justice and correction personnel's personnel, which is pretty good news, but only 11% of the police units and just 5% of military contingents. The UN is, is doing its best to encourage UN member states to contribute more women, uh, particularly to try to double the numbers by 2028. But frankly, this needs to move more quickly. Now, some may think, you know, and some have argued in DC that increasing women's involvement in peacekeeping is more about political correctness than it is about results. But honestly, the UN would tell you differently. Women have much better access to women and children in the areas that they're peacekeeping. Women can gather critical information, particularly about gender-based violence and about violence against children than male peacekeepers can gather. Women peacekeepers can encourage other women within the community to be part of the peace process. And women contribute to better decision-making by expanding a range of viewpoints and information uh, and often leading to better results. So the bottom line is, from my perspective and the UN's perspective, that women's involvement in peacekeeping actually increases operational effectiveness. And therefore, it's a critically important objective as we think about how the UN is going to reform and change over the years to come. Uh, and the Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres, has been quite emphatic on this point, saying that women's involvement in peacekeeping is, a, and I quote, how we will transform international peace and security. So the Secretary General is committed. So collectively, let's watch this space because I think it's an important area for improvement by the UN. So I think there's a broader question as well, which is why does peacekeeping in countries like Cyprus or Mali or Qatar or South Sudan, why does it matter to us? Because frankly, like it or not, American interests across the world are expansive. It matters greatly whether tensions spill into the open between NATO allies like Greece and Turkey. Such conflict would threaten global stability. 
In other parts of the world, like Mali and Kar, we can't allow terrorists to flourish, a point that we were reminded of so recently and poignantly with the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And it also matters whether democracy that values human rights take root versus autocracies where the governments matter more than the people. And the, now clearly the US, we can't afford to be the world's police officer, nor should we be. But when we contribute to the UN's budget, we share the cost of promoting these values with other countries around the world. And it shows that in fact, when the US contributes to UN peacekeeping, it's eight times cheaper than if we were to do these peacekeeping missions ourselves. So this is all to say that peacekeeping, you know, it's not perfect, believe me, I've seen a lot of missions and I've seen the pros and the cons, but it's not as flawed as any other human endeavor. Uh, and there are areas that are ripe for reform, including the participation of women. Yet despite these flaws, we know something now that we didn't, didn't know a few years ago. Peacekeeping works. Studies have shown there's ample evidence that civilians die less often when peacekeepers are deployed. There is less chance of violence spreading across borders and less reoccurrence of civil wars when peacekeeping, peacekeepers are deployed. So we know for a fact on an empirical basis, the UN peacekeeping works and that's good news. So because we know that UN peacekeeping works, because we know that individual missions like Cyprus are playing an important role in pr pr uh, promoting stability, it's important that we collectively play a role in America, in where I live in Maryland, where you live in California, where you live in Santa Barbara, uh, to try to promote peacekeeping. And you play a critical role here. For US, uh, for, I'm sorry, for many years, the US has underpaid its agreed upon share of the UN peacekeeping budget under both Democratic and Republican administrations. And it's the result of this sort of artificial cap that was imposed by Congress in the mid nineties that prevents us from paying the full amount that we owed. Now during the Obama administration, they were able to work out a situation where we could fully pay our dues. The Trump administration did not. And as a result, we owe a billion dollars to peacekeeping today. And that's unacceptable. But, uh, and it's unacceptable, not just because it's our obligation to pay these dues. What it means is that the countries that actually contribute to peacekeepers, Bangladesh and Rwanda and Ethiopia, they're not being reimbursed and they can't afford to pay their troops and are forced to absorb the loss. So the countries that are actually sending the troops, we don't send the troops, are, and their troops are at risk of being killed and injured in peacekeeping, they're the ones that bear the burden of the shortfalls, of our unwillingness to pay our dues. That ought to change, and that's unfair. Um, and so also, our failure to pay our dues just alienates our allies, and that's ridiculous. Why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. Um, so the Biden administration has proposed that the administration pay the bulk of our UN arrears and Congress is in the process of appropriating these funds. Um, and for the first time in nearly a quarter century, a bold Congresswoman from California, no less, is trying to lift the peacekeeping cap. Uh, Representative Sarah Jacobs from San Diego has put forward a bill to do just that, just a coincidence that she used to work for the UN. 
Um, and so here's where you all come in. Please ask your congressional representative that you support you in peacekeeping. Tell them that you believe that the United States should honor our treaty obligations. And finally, tell them that you support Representative Jacobs' effort to repeal the artificial cap on UN peacekeeping dues. The entire California delegation has not co-sponsored the, the bill yet. So you have your work cut out for you. Um, now, sometimes we forget that the UN was born from the ashes of World War II uh, through American leadership. This is not an institution that was imposed upon us. We created the UN to prevent the world from suffering another atrocity like World War II, when an estimated 60 million people died, soldiers and civilians both. And frankly, sometimes our legislators forget this. You can remind them. So thank you for doing it in advance. Um, you know, I wish I could tell you that the prospects for peace in Cyprus were just around the corner, but I can't tell you that. The prospect for peace in Cyprus remains elusive. But in order to get peace, and we've seen this in peacekeeping missions around the world, or even the possibility of peace, you need stability. And stability matters to the people of Cyprus. It matters to the region and it matters to the world. And that's what UN peacekeepers in Cyprus provide. That's what peacekeepers around the world provide. They're doing hard work, they're risking their lives. They're making sacrifices, they're away from their families to bring peace to a country that they're not even citizens of. And they do this day in and day out and we should be appreciative. So it was an honor to meet with the peacekeepers last week in Cyprus. And it's been an honor to talk to you this evening. And I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Peter. That was a wonderful, wonderful presentation. What you did beautifully, I thought, was you explained the value of the peacekeeping mission through the example of what you picked up from Cyprus. It's complex, but the payoff is enormous. Um, the second thing is that you cited research that shows that peacekeeping mission of the UN is effective and very effective at, at a low cost. Um, the third thing that I picked up was that we have this artificial cap in our budget process that needs to be lifted for us to more fully you know, pay our dues to support peacekeeping, which can do so much good around the world you know, for that. And you also mentioned that right now the UN is engaged in 12 peacekeeping missions around the world. So my question before I start reading other people's questions is, um, who decides, what's the process of deciding where UN peacekeepers go and who empowers the peacekeeping mission? It's all done by the UN Security Council, um, in which, um, and particularly by the, the permanent five uh, members of the Security Council. Um, and uh, not only whether the peacekeeping mission is begun, but also whether it ends. For instance, the US just ended a very large peacekeeping mission in Sudan, in part because of uh, the decisions made by the permanent five members of the Security Council, also because of the views of the government of Sudan. Um, and 
you know, the, what the peacekeepers do in each country is different. And they get either every six months or every year, the UN Security Council will pass a resolution that's quite detailed that outlines the roles of the different peacekeeping missions and what each mission is supposed to do. And what's really exciting is increasingly they're putting performance measurement goals into the resolutions so that it's not, you know, there's actually something you can measure as to whether the peacekeeping missions are achieving their goals. Um, so, um, uh, I, you know, I think that that's the primary way to do it. But, you know, we're looking for the future. You know, where's the next peacekeeping mission going to be? Is it Syria? Is it Yemen? Um, there was talk of one in Haiti after the, after the assassination of the president. Um, you know, is it a, between Gaza, you know, and the Gaza? I don't know where the next peacekeeping mission is, but it's ultimately the Security Council that does it. And it requires the assent of the people and or the government, you know, largely the government in that country to do this. Thank you. One of the questions from Gail Gillis is a good one, is that, you know, I think I'm pretty well read. Um, I know Gail is, but I couldn't tell you the 12 peacekeeping missions or a lot of the things you spoke today is new information for me. So why doesn't the UN get more PR, you know, in the US and maybe in the world regarding the importance of its keep, um, peacekeeping mission? You know, um, a couple of things, which is uh, that I think that the UN has been slow, although it's catching up in terms of effective use of social media, where so many people get their news today. Now they, they do it, but they don't do it as effectively as others. So I think the UN needs to be better in terms of its use of social media. I think the other challenge is that, and it's, it's endemic in the way that the UN does its work, and Barbara, you know this well from your years of experience, your husband's years of experience, uh, is that, um, that they're working for 193 countries. And so it's really difficult for them to put peacekeeping into a um, American context that really resonates with Americans because they're trying to come up with language that works for everybody. And that sort of makes it a little bit more generic in nature and therefore it doesn't ring as much. That said, uh, you know, if you ever want, you know, information about peacekeeping from an American context, please go to the Better World Campaign and UNA, USA websites, where we try to put peacekeeping uh, in a more uh, American focus and also, you know, talking points and information on each mission can be found on the Better World Campaign website. If you wanna know in simple bullet form what each peacekeeping mission does, um, go to the BWC website. Good, last question in the interest of time. You know, you know Barbara Mueller asked, you know, how can we help with the peacekeeping? And one specific thing you mentioned was the legislation sponsored by the California Congresswoman. Do you remember, do you know what the name of that legislation is? What is HR? Do you know the, do you know the number of the, that piece of legislation that takes a cap off um, US funding for the UN? So when we try to advocate for it, you know, we could provide a specific reference. Um, I will have to get it from my team. Um, 
I could Google it right now, but I'd be wasting your time. Yeah. Uh, and so, but I, I do have it. I have a fact sheet on it. So I will send it to. Send it to Barbara. I'll send it to Barbara. Barbara, you can send it to everybody on this call. And, um, and along with a sort of an action alert on how to get involved. And so I will provide you that information. Okay. And so Peter, thank you very much for the preparation you spent, you know, in providing us your presentation. It was excellent. And for taking our questions. So um, my pleasure. Okay, thank you.